Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. The path to reconciliation is one of listening, learning and growing together. A path that recognises the central place of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in our past and in our future. It is in that spirit that we acknowledge the traditional owners of the land and pay tribute to Elders past, present and future. Welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy issues facing Australia and the world. Policy Forum Pod is produced by the Crawford School of Public Policy here at the Australian National University. I'm Sharon Bessel, and I'm here once again with my amazing co-host, Anna Greta Hunter. Anna Greta, good to see you, and what a conversation we're going to have today. I'm so looking forward to today's conversation, Sharon. It is wonderful to be back with you. I'm, of course, I'm Anna Greta Hunter. I'm a cardiologist and physician. I'm the Human Futures Fellow at the College of Health and Medicine here at the Australian National University. And Sharon, what we're going to be talking about today ties actually into how I've spent quite a bit of time in the last week and, in fact, in the last couple of months. This week, particularly, I spent some time at Parliament House with a group of doctors and parents from the Northern Territory. A large group of them had travelled to Canberra to draw attention to their concern around the immense emissions that might be released from shale gas fracking in the Northern Territory, in the Beetaloo Basin particularly. And they've been seeking to highlight their concerns around the impact of these fossil fuel projects on their communities, on their health and wellbeing, and on their future. Paediatricians and some other doctors from the Northern Territory are also worried about the direct health impacts of gas fracking and the petrochemical processing, the toxic chemicals that are released into the air that contaminate soil and water around the gas fracking sites. They've been worried about the health and well-being of their communities, the increased risks of childhood leukaemia, chronic lung disease, cardiovascular events. But the parents particularly shared their concerns about the direct health impacts of their projects and the deep concern about the rising temperatures in Australia's most northern capital city. They were deeply concerned and to to see their distress around questions of livability, habitability, survivability as the climate changes was quite remarkable and powerful. They all are confronting, quietly or on the side, the possibility of needing to leave a place that they love. Yet the Northern Territory government is fiercely committed to expanding mining development in the Northern Territory, seemingly perhaps against some good advice. The pressure of economics, jobs, growth weigh heavily on politicians and on parts of the community who, despite the environmental and social costs, find themselves supporting projects that many find challenging to fathom when those longer-term impacts are really considered. These Northern Territory conversations that have been taking place in Canberra in August 2023 offer us some real insight into the complexity of tackling climate change, the challenges for community balancing work and survival, economics, the environment and society, and trying to make decisions with an uncertain future. We know Australians are concerned about climate change and have been for many years. And this year, we're perhaps even more so concerned as we anticipate yet another unprecedented summer. Yet the politics of transition to renewable energy, to a net zero economy and to a world where politics recognises environmental and social impacts of decision making remains fraught and complex. The map is unclear and we've not yet defined the compass that might lead us. So it is extraordinary to welcome our guest today into this discussion. Uh, And I'd love to hear, Sharon, if you might like to introduce our wonderful guest who's going to take us through these issues, I'm sure, today. Thanks, Anna Greta. I would love to. Dr. Rebecca Colvin is a researcher and a senior lecturer here at the Crawford School at the ANU. Beck's research focuses on exactly those complexities that you've just mapped out, Anna Greta, issues around the social and political dimensions of really contentious issues associated with climate policy 
and with energy transition. Beck's work is particularly focused on understanding how different people in different groups engage with social, political and policy conflict around climate and energy issues. And she focuses on the importance of identity. And I think that's so important in understanding how these issues play out. Beck has a very wide range of publications, and she also recently was in conversation as part of the 100 Climate Conversation interviews that have been happening at the Powerhouse Museum. That was a really remarkable conversation. And so for any of our listeners who enjoy the conversation that we're about to have, please do have a look at um, that Powerhouse Museum conversation that Beck was involved in. Beck, it's really great to have you with us today. Welcome. Thank you both so much for having me on. It's Pleasure to be here with you. Beck, for some years now, we've been engaged with the challenges of emissions reductions for communities and groups at the local level. I wonder if we could start today's conversation by asking you to map out some of the history around emissions reduction in Australia. You've noted that Australia was one of the first wealthy countries to repeal a carbon price which is not a a particularly um, positive recognition that Australia has. And you've described climate politics in Australia over recent years as both toxic and dysfunctional. So as a starting point, could you give us just a brief overview of climate politics in Australia and the legacy of that toxicity and dysfunction that we now need to overcome? Thanks so much, Sharon. So what I'd like to do is talk about how things played out from approximately 2009. And actually, the story goes much further back than that. Um, And for anyone interested in that longer term history, a brilliant resource is a book called The Carbon Club by Marion Wilkinson. But 2009 was when the Carbon Pollution Reduction Scheme was proposed. And we can kind of think about the decade or so from then as being this particularly difficult decade on climate politics and policy in Australia. In this time, we saw the um, implementation and repeal of the carbon price, as you mentioned, Sharon. We also saw multiple prime ministers lose their prime ministership at elections and between elections and climate change and climate politics has been at least partially implicated in many of those changes. But we also saw public opinion really divide along left-right political lines in Australia. Um, This was a point, uh, I think, especially around 2012, was a point at which we had the greatest departure between different groups of people in Australia and climate change. And this is where we would say Australia was second only to the United States in terms of how divided we were along left-right political lines. And so what this means is that when we had lots of our colleagues who are contributors to the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, for instance, engaging with the synthesis of the weight of the best available evidence on the science of climate change, that was a far cry from the way climate change was positioned in the public sphere in Australia. Some of our other colleagues, um, Professor Ian Walker, has described climate change as a social object. And so this means for most people, they don't see climate change as being the sum of best available evidence on the causes and the impacts and the mitigation pathways and so on. But instead, it becomes something that signals who we are. We look around in our social networks and we see how are folks at the cafe and at the pub and at the school gate talking about this complex thing? How are the voices that I trust in the media talking about this complex issue? And we take a lot of cues from those sorts of signals. But at the same time, the way that we express our position on something like climate change and the whole raft of associated issues like renewable energy, future of coal, the place of gas, for example. For many people, the way that we say, here's my position on this complex topic, is much less about the topic and much more about expressing who we are, what are the groups that we belong to, what are the values that we hold, and who are the people that we are different from as well as the people that we see ourselves as belonging to. So we've gone through this really difficult decade, and from around 2018, we start to see a bit of a shift in the trends in public opinion. So from around 2018, that's when we started to see public opinion kind of levelling off, but having a stable majority of Australians and across the political spectrum for the most part saying, yes, we recognise the importance of action on climate change, we want something to happen. But of course, we're at another turning point now, which is where we've kind of moved from this period of symbolic debate about climate change. Do we recognise 
that it's real? Do we commit to doing something about it? How do we set our targets to moving to the next phase, which is saying, okay, so how are we going to achieve those things? So we're at a point now, in my opinion, where we're shifting from relatively symbolic debates about climate change and Australia's position to the quite material decisions about how are we going to decarbonize our systems? How are we going to work out how to compensate people who have something to lose and to maximize opportunities for people in this future economy and future systems, especially around energy and electricity that we're going to be building over the next few years. Back in 2022, the Australian federal government changed, and you've just alluded to that, that we've moved from a place where we were arguing about the, the existence or otherwise to a place where we're acknowledging and the, the climate change strategy has become much more real and engaging. Uh, of course, we in that context, the federal government has recently established the Net Zero Authority, and it might be a good opportunity at this point to come to that organisation. The authority will sit within the Department of the Prime Minister and Cabinet, with Greg Combay as its chair. I wonder if you can describe what this authority is and what role it has to play in identity politics and bringing us together. Thanks, Anna Greta. So based on the information that's been um put out into the world so far. The authority has three key objectives. So one is to coordinate across government, and if I understand correctly, that would be um, across different um, departments or entities within government and across different levels of government. Uh, to also look at how to open up opportunities for investors in a net zero economy. And then also how to help workers and communities to navigate the change that's coming. And of course, it's that last bit that I'm most interested in. That's where my research directs me to be most focused. But one of the things that's quite, um, I don't know if it's right to say symbolically important because it's more than symbolic, but research looking at resource communities that are hearing very, very mixed messages about their future economy. So these are communities that have a large dependence on coal, for instance. They've been calling for some sort of certainty from government not necessarily wanting it to be um, for their personal wish list for every item to be ticked, but for some sort of statement that says, here's where we're headed and here's how we're going to manage this process. So the announcement of the authority speaks to that ask that's been coming out of um, a lot of regional communities and out of organisations, civil society groups that have been active in this space as well. But it, it's also potentially quite significant because this is going to be a really complex issue to manage. And in a lot of these communities, there's a challenge in having open and constructive conversations about energy transition, decarbonisation, and what their future economies are going to be. A large part of that is thanks to the legacy of those toxic and dysfunctional debates that we've had on climate change in Australia. So something that's really valuable or I think um, a great promise of the announcement of the Net Zero Authority is to make that space that says, here's the direction that we're headed and let's work out how to work together to get there. And what I'm hoping is that we'll see a lot of strong representation of people from the regions that are going to be most directly touched by this transition to a Net Zero economy. Beck, I, I wanted to pick up a, a little bit more on your research and that third objective of the Net Zero Authority and, and that issue of how communities can be supported to navigate change. Some research that I've done on the east coast of Tasmania has really demonstrated to me just how frightened many people are around the sustainability of their communities. And that's sustainability in all ways. It's environmental sustainability, but also economic sustainability as people really worry about the future of particularly small towns that are very dependent on fossil fuels or on, on other extractive industries. And Beck, you've done some really remarkable work within communities that are currently dependent or largely dependent on coal for employment. Could you talk us through what you hear from those communities about their concerns, their fears and their hopes in the context of moving towards zero emissions? Because I think listening to those voices is just so important. Mm, thanks, Sharon. Yeah, totally agree. And that's something that we, and I say we in a very broad and collective sense, people in the policy research space, the media, um, think tanks, civil society groups. More listening to communities should be at the top of the list for folks that want to be engaging constructively in this space. 
And there's a couple of key points that I'd like to draw out of some of the research in these communities. So one is that feeling that they're not in charge of their futures, that there are decision makers that are at a distance from where these communities are in the cities that are making determinations about what's right for the communities, um, making determinations that also speak to a sense of respect for these communities and then imposing that will on the regions and the communities. And this is a kind of complicated because there's a lot of narratives. In fact, my PhD supervisor, um, Dr. Brad Witt, who's up at the University of Queensland, has done quite a lot of really interesting work looking at um, the perceptions of an urban regional divide and where these narratives come from. And he's really pointed to the fact that these are narratives that really get reinforced in the rural press in particular. So there's a sense to which these sorts of decisions happen, um, policy decisions made at arm's length and imposed on communities, but then also the narratives that say this is the way things are. We in the regions are being um, steamrolled by the people in the cities. So there's kind of that complex perception and reality aspect to, to disentangle there. So something that, in my view, is really essential is rebuilding that empowerment for people in communities to have a genuine say in priorities for the communities, the things that are going to be um, put into strategic plans that are going to be invested in. Something that has come out of work in the Upper Hunter was talking to people that live in this area. This is somewhere with big, big coal mines and coal-fired power stations, is that folks aren't seeing their future as being the energy transition story, the way these communities are often spoken about from afar. They see the challenges for their communities as being education, aged care, transport, health care, keeping young people there, having opportunities for young people to have a good education and a good career path locally, affordability, cost of work, all of the things that are the common um, human concerns that we all share. And then energy transition and climate policy is just another layer that's kind of squished on top of that, making all that other stuff complex. So when you have local views and local voices really guiding the way to respond to these sorts of challenges, that's where you'll see that there'll probably be a whole lot of focus on Let's get our health system fixed up and make this a sustainable place to live. And by doing that, that will be creating those social conditions that will enable um, quite a constructive response to energy transition. So it will be a community with capacity and cohesion and vision for themselves and hopefully participation and engagement in these futures. The other thing that I'd like to mention that's come out of the research is also about some of the um, ways that the discussion about these types of complex issues plays out. So the research in the Upper Hunter showed that everyone that we spoke to had a view on the future of the coal sector in particular that was quite nuanced. So these would be people who worked in the coal sector, people who didn't, people who had reason to be a little bit cynical or sceptical, like folks that have been sort of caught up in land use conflicts with the coal mines, for instance. Everyone was saying, we want to plan for the future. We recognise coal may not be forever, but we don't want it to be shut down overnight because we can see what will be the impacts in our community. There should be some sort of plan. So that was this kind of universal um, view that was expressed. There were lots of differences in the detail, like how long people foresaw the coal would continue for, but certainly that was kind of a common ground. But then when people were talking about what they see other people as thinking about, it was this much more categorical binary view of coal is forever and we won't entertain any arguments about the fact that you might need to think about how to manage this versus coal should be shut down yesterday. Everything should be closed down immediately with no regard for the consequences. So there's this real perception gap between what it appears to be that people are thinking and actually engaging with that complexity and that nuance versus what they think are the ways that other people are thinking. And so that perception gap, which gets reinforced by some of their kind of bombastic voices that we might hear amplified through the media often, is really shutting down a lot of that debate. But it also speaks to that knowledge and that understanding that people have of their own communities and how to manage change in their own communities. There's a lot there that is genuine expertise, genuine insight, connection into networks like networks of volunteerism that can be really essential to managing these changes. 
Beck, I could actually listen to you talk about this for ages because I think uh, your research is unlocking some of the extraordinary opportunities for change with these difficult policy areas. Uh, you've just described to us uh, the ways in which we see communities changing and within the community there's extraordinary discussion and I'm a, your research out of the Hunter Valley and some of the conversations that have taken place in towns like Gladstone have been remarkable You've explained to us beautifully how important it is to give engagement and agency. So once people are engaged and part of the solutions, that it becomes much less polarising. So we've got opportunities for change at a community level, and that, that's across the board in towns that are struggling and who are deeply invested in the fossil fuel industry and who are aware, I think, intelligently about the opportunities for change and the, the need to be part of that conversation. Beside that, of course, we now have a federal government who are committed to a net zero approach, although perhaps sometimes in an unusual way. And I wonder what role political leadership has to play in. So as we think about our policy framework and we, you know, we develop a, a policy at a federal level that is then taken down to the community level, are there opportunities to, for political leadership and policy imagination that help to bridge the gap there? Thanks so much, Anna Greta. And yes, definitely. So um, something that's quite helpful, I, I guess, helpful might be the word to use. Um, and Frank Yotso, who I know you all know, um, was making this point on the 100 Climate Conversations podcast just recently, as well as that Australia committed to a net zero by 2050 target under the former coalition government. And as Frank rightly pointed out, that makes that quite a durable commitment in the policy space. So that's very helpful. We, of course, then had the change of government, which saw the short-term emissions reductions targets um, increased in their ambition and a reaffirmation of that commitment to the net zero by 2050 target. One of the things that will be very helpful in that sense of political leadership is that cross-partisan commitment. So seeing that we can have often um, opinion leaders that come out of the political space being very influential on what kind of uh, like opens up or enables people who identify with that political group to express um, in their own sense or see as being relevant for them. So to illustrate, there was a great paper published in 2018 by some Australian researchers that was looking at how plastic people's views are on support for an emissions trading scheme based on whether or not you signal that there's cross-partisan support for it. So this, um, if I can remember the numbers, <laughs> was looking at the percent of people who'd support an emissions trading scheme amongst Greens voters, Labor voters and coalition voters. There was also people who are unaffiliated, but I'll forget about them because that wasn't the interesting part of the story. So when the question was put to them saying, would you support an emissions trading scheme? We had something like 97% of Greens voters, 90% of Labor voters, and it might have been 48% of coalition voters. So quite a large partisan gap. And of course, the paper was from 2018. I think the data were collected in 2016. So that was really um, close to that time of the particularly divisive uh, period in climate policy. So you kind of expect that because that reflects what was normative for the political parties at the time. And then what was interesting was these researchers asked the same question to a different set of people but added in an extra statement that said uh, something along the lines of both Labor Party leader Bill Shorten and Liberal Party Minister Malcolm Turnbull support this approach. And that single sentence produced a nine percentage point increase in support among coalition voters for an emissions trading scheme. So the story that was given by the research, this thing was um, Kulsa and Tranta, this was published in Global Environmental Change, was that that leadership cue that a Liberal Party minister at the time, minister, supported an emissions trading scheme became something that would say, well, if you're a coalition voter, then maybe it's okay for you to support this thing as well, just for a small amount of those people. The other thing that was interesting was there was about the same percentage point decrease in support for an emissions trading scheme among Greens and Labor voters. And so part of the story there is the way in which we do have our political views and often our views that are on contentious topics expressing the way that we see ourself as being um, sort of constructed with a series of identities that are drawn from the groups to which we belong. We often seek positive distinctiveness from the groups that we see as being out groups. So for some people, if you see that 
um, even if your side of politics supports something, well, if the folks on the other side support it, then maybe it's not so good after all. So you have this really interesting dynamic where we'll probably have the push and the pull when we have um, cross-partisan or partisan positions on these policy issues. But nonetheless, I do think, just to go back to your question, sorry, it was quite a long diversion there, but the political leadership is important because it does send these cues about how it is that um, a whole lot of people can see themselves as belonging to a complex issue like climate change. The only thing I'd like to add there is it's not just the politicians, it's people who have political influence. And so I'd emphasise here outsized personalities in the media in particular, the sorts of um, people who have big platforms, uh, who can get circulated on social media very easily and who often can produce grabs that can be quite compelling or quite engaging. These will be the sorts of messengers and the sorts of views that are quite influential alongside those partisan political voices. Because, of course, there are partisan views in the Australian media landscape as well. Politics, policy and how to achieve change. Listeners, we're going to take a really short break and we'll be back in a moment with Rebecca Colvin. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Listeners, welcome back. We're here with Dr Rebecca Colvin and before the break we were talking about Australia's new net zero authority, the challenges facing some regional communities as we move towards a decarbonised future and the role of both local and political leadership. We've talked about identity and the way in which our politics work. Beck, I'd love to turn now perhaps to some other issues around transition and, and particularly perhaps we might start by talking about the role of industry in, particularly in supporting communities through transition. You've written a bit about the relationship between the fossil fuel industries and government in Australia. How does uh, tools like the Net Zero Authority and the work that you've done uh, create and the need for engagement with industry if the transition is going to make the most of the opportunities that can be created in these local communities? It's a great question, Anna Greta. So, like, the industry in these communities is both like it's multi-layered. You've got the local project or the local initiative, whatever you want to call it, that's there. And that often is something that people have a very close connection to in their personal lives. Then got the big picture of the industry, like the industry groups and the Minerals Council, for instance, we know are very happy to play in the political space. So when we think about the role of industry, there's a role for industry at lots of different levels. At that local level, there's a really important role for the industry in terms of the trust that they have often amongst people in the local community, but also the ability for the industry, the company, the project, whatever, to be a space where resources towards workers can be really well distributed, really well shared. So these can be things like putting um, on-the-job retraining that helps to equip a workforce for what we'd call the clean energy future, I guess, or for the industries of the future, not just clean energy, is manufacturing all of the associated value chain parts of that future economy as well. But also thinking about how it can be if we're starting to see closure, like we've seen closure of coal-fired power stations, if we're going to be seeing closure of mines as well, for instance, then thinking about how is it that the industries that are there can think about what is their obligation and their responsibility to the communities. And so that's a sort of role that can be really important for government or governance actors. Um, this can be putting requirements on companies as they're winding up, or it could also be helping to coordinate and helping to open up resources and support and making sure that 
when you do have that goodwill from companies to do the right thing by the community that has sustained it for so long, is that they are able to um, act on what it is that they want to do. Something that came up in some of the research, and this is kind of another little tangent, but in the Upper Hunter, a lot of people were talking about what use is there for the mine voids, like the big holes that have been dug in the ground um, from their open cut coal mines that are there. Because, of course, often we want big holes in the ground for things like water storage, and they're pretty expensive to dig. And so a lot of people in the area were saying, like, we've got ideas for things that we could do with these mine voids. And then the message from industry was that some of the requirements that are in place around returning the landscape to something that approximates how it would have been beforehand creates some challenges in looking at, well, what are some of these alternative purposes that we might be able to put into place with the mine voids um, in line with the communities? I wouldn't suggest to say that I understand the full regulatory implications of these sorts of things. There are better minds than mine who would be across that. But um, there is a colleague, Hannah Askland, who's at the University of Newcastle, has been working on these very questions. What do people in these communities see as being um, their future uses for things like these big mine voids? And how can you um, kind of imagine that? And I think you used the term of um, policy imagination before and a greater but using methods of design and art to engage people to think about not just got this hole in the ground, how do we fill it in or plant some trees on top of it, but how can we see this as an asset and make the most of it for the future? And I think that's pretty exciting work that's happening. Beck, it is really exciting to hear about some of those opportunities, you know, that give us hope for a different way forward than the kinds of divisive narratives we, we so often hear. And you've given us such a clear sense also of the number of players that are involved in energy transition. And often those players have very different levels of power, very different interests. And you've written that the energy transition will be best served by place-based bottom-up initiatives that are congruent with local identities, values, preferences and priorities. And I know that you said that you know, you're not an expert on the, the kind of the deep detail of regulatory frameworks, but I would love to hear your thoughts on how we think or rethink ways of governing, ways of making decisions, rethink governance structures in ways that really give space to local values in all their complexities and nuance but without falling to the kinds of divisive identity politics that pursue narrow interests that we've we've talked a little bit about already? It's such a good question. It's such a complex question, as I know you know it is. Because of course, we can set up these um, beautiful visions of systems that we have, of participation, of local-based leadership. Um, and then we take those ideas and we put them into the real world where there are those power dynamics. And it becomes a lot harder to be able to see how to navigate through some of these views on the way that we could have more um, participatory decision-making or participatory democracy. I know this is a topic that's very close to you both as well and um, something that you know about through your research and firsthand too. But I think um, a lot of the challenge comes from getting local folks engaged in a way that is genuine. And this comes through in my own research and from lots of other work as well as it people will be invited into some sort of process and they volunteer their time, which is a great cost to most people. You know, a lot of people work full time, they've got kids, they've got housework, they've got bills to pay. It takes a lot to carve out some time out of that to go and be part of a process. It's probably um, challenging at times, it takes a bit of brow burrowing and thinking and learning and listening, um, compromise. Only to find at the end of that that they don't see any impact of the work that they've done. And this is a real challenge that we have in this current moment that we're in, where there's a very strong recognition of the importance for engagement and participation. Of course, our colleague, Professor Carolyn Hendricks, writes extensively on this. But when we have um, forces that drive participation, this certainly happens when we're developing big projects where there's a requirement for community consultation or engagement, it can often be quite tokenistic. And so it will take people's time and be just as good as if nothing was done in the first place. And so one of the risks that I see is that 
as we talk about the importance for place-based leadership and local leadership, is that we end up with just a tokenistic veneer of that sort of local engagement on top of systems that don't actually empower local people to make the decisions and see those decisions come through in practice. It seems to me that there's a lot to be said for local government as being a level of decision-making and a level of governance that we should be giving a bit more attention to. But I know there's often challenges for local government in the way that their ability to implement decisions intersects with state and commonwealth levels of government as well. So part of the challenge is making sure that we don't duplicate existing systems and take more time and take more resources from people without actually returning something in the sense of those things of agency and empowerment that you mentioned earlier. But really looking at how is it that we can actually open up space to say, let's trust that everyday people who know their communities are able to make good decisions that can help set up a pathway toward the future that they want and the future that's in line with what we understand about some of these global scale challenges that are facing us as well. Mm. Such an extraordinarily beautiful description of how we can engage communities, I think, in our um, major challenges. And you've just touched a little bit on the importance of trust, I guess, on a federal level that we need to trust in local people to make decisions about their future and to give them as much agency uh, in that decision-making process as possible, but that, that can lead to much better outcomes. I'm really interested and particularly interested having spent time earlier this week with groups from the Northern Territory here in Canberra, speaking to parliamentarians and advisors from around the country, that there is this divide between the lived experience of a region and our understanding, perhaps in a metropolitan context particularly. As we begin to draw this conversation to a close, I would love to hear your thoughts on what people living in metropolitan regions who are perhaps more likely to support climate action and to elect representatives who are committed to transition. But but what do we need to understand and and how do we understand the perspective of people living in remote or regional or rural parts of Australia, uh, particularly where the fossil fuel industry might be the major employer? How can we uh, come into those conversations with compassion to achieve the sort of changes that we're keen to see? I love that you asked that question, Anagreta. Thank you. There's um, some really great research that's been done. um, Authors are Della Bosca and Gillespie, a paper from 2018. They were looking at how do people in multi-generational coal mining communities experience their observation of um, either climate or environmental protest type movements. And something that they found was that when these movements are talking about coal, and of course there's been this very prominent discourse in climate movement saying, I think you can look at uh, 350 and Bill McKibben's statements about saying, we need to find the bad guy, let's make that bad guy the fossil fuel industry. So people in the multi-generational communities, coal mining communities, will see that that attack on coal is an attack on them. And that's even when you hear that there'll be the line saying, you know, this isn't about the workers, it's about the industry, but it doesn't feel that way. And often, like, you know, I find when I look at the communication, the engagement literature, sometimes the answers are pretty simple and they're things that we can kind of see in our own personal lives. If someone's waggling their finger at you, telling you, don't do what you're doing, you kind of want to fold your arms and say, I'm just going to do that thing even more now because you told me not to do it. (laughs) And there's a degree to which that type of dynamic plays out a little bit as well. Um, Some of the research that I did a couple of years ago was looking at what were the narratives in the media around that very prominent protest movement, the Stop Adani Convoy. So just as a little bit of background, this was a protest movement ahead of the 2019 federal election that saw a bunch of folks hop in their cars um, under a shared banner saying Stop Adani, which was a message saying um, we oppose the... Uh, construction or the opening or the approval of um, what was at the time of Dani Mining, now Brahms Mining's Carmichael Coal Mine in Queensland. And they travelled up the east coast of Australia, collecting people along the way, having rallies, and eventually converged on the um, Queensland town of Claremont, which is the town nearest to where Carmichael Coal Mine is um, being constructed. 
And the way this was put together in the media was a story that very much said there's an us bound together in this protest movement. Uh, you could see who they were because they had the same iconography, the same signs, they were doing the same thing, they were calling for the same thing. And something that we know from decades upon decades of empirical research and theorizing in social psychology is when you have an us, you very often get a them. <laughs> and this certainly came through in the media representations of this protest movement. So where the members of the Stop Adani convoy were kind of described as being inner city elites from the southern states, they're not Queenslanders, um, also the concept of doll bludgers was applied as a categorization alongside this idea of being elites, like people have nothing better to do with their time. These became markers of belonging that were put in contrast to what it would say for you to be the sort of person who, instead of seeing yourself as belonging to something like this convoy protest movement, what would mean that you should instead belong to the counter movement that emerged in opposition? And so those were things like being a regional person rather than a city person, being a Queenslander rather than in anyone else, <laughs> um, and also being a hard worker, like a salt of the earth type of person, as opposed to those other stereotypes that were prominent. And these were the elites and the doll plodged stereotypes that came through in the media coverage. So something that's complex is where you see these sorts of movements emerge and the story that gets told about them isn't necessarily the story that the people participating in the protest movement are telling themselves and their people or think should be told about what they're doing. But it became presented as being kind of like an incursion on regional Queensland by a whole lot of people from outside who were forcing their will on the community there. And that's my view, and I come at this from the social identity, um, social relation type aspects. I think that creates challenges for having constructive engagement in these communities on the questions that affect their futures very directly. I'm sure other people who come at these questions from different conceptual or theoretical perspectives might disagree, and I welcome that. I think that would be really rich to explore. So thinking about how is it that um, these conversations can play out constructively is really finding ways to say, let's listen to the regions, let's see what people want. Uh, I know um, we've talked a little bit about the Net Zero Authority and the um, recent paper there. Something that I found very useful for my own thinking, and this was largely in response to messages I was hearing in um, regional communities, is that coal's not just coal. There's different uses for coal, different types of coal. And so the drivers of the future of these different aspects of coal will be quite different. And this is across whether coal is for domestic purposes, which means it would be kind of directly subject to Australia's emissions reductions commitments and decarbonisation of the electricity system, or if it's thermal coal for export, which means it's subject to the import country's decarbonisation pathways. But then, of course, we've got metallurgical coal, which is used primarily in steel making, which would be more subject to decarbonisation of the steel making process. So in regional communities and areas that people are closely involved with the coal mining sector, they understand this really, really closely. And then when they hear voices from outside talking about coal, like it's a singular entity, that can become a really strong signal that those people who are saying we in our community should be dealing with substantial change, they don't actually understand what's going on here. And that becomes a real challenge for those aspects of trust and finding a constructive way forward. Beck, this is a conversation that I would like to continue for, for much, much longer. And those insights that you've given us into the way assumptions from the outside play out within local communities, I think is just so important for us to understand. Um, and it's essential if we're going to overcome those us and them divides that we must overcome if we're able to move forward on these really complex issues. But Beck, we're, we're going to have to draw this conversation to a close. And as we do, I'd like us to return to the Net Zero Authority where we began the conversation. It came into being on the 1st of July this year. 
that authority has the potential to be very significant within the policy landscape and in navigating the complexities that we've been talking about. And I think it also has the potential to find or to help us to find just and inclusive ways forward. If that authority is to achieve all of that, what would you like to see as its very first actions as the Net Zero Authority begins its work? So something I should probably mention here is the establishment of the authority will actually be probably in about 12 months' time. (laughs) So at the moment, there's an agency that's been established to um, set up the authority. But once the authority is underway, what I would really like to see is that commitment to really centering local voices. There's all sorts of innovative, inventive governance structures that could be borrowed from other initiatives or could be invented and experimented with (laughs) for the sake of the authority that would see um, a really strong voice from communities. And my personal or my academic opinion, however you want to draw the line between those two different things, what I would like to see is through the authority, the government being accountable to local decisions and local leadership, Um, rather than what we often have, and I don't mean for this to be a reflection on the authority in any way, and it's not, but we often see in big processes that bring in local voices, that those local voices are more in that tick box sense, or they become kind of like a sounding board for decisions that are being made by those in that more formal position of power and authority. We have the opportunity, we have the opportunity to reinvent everything that we do in the world at any time. We have the opportunity to flip that around. And I think that would be a really great thing to see experimented with. You know, it might not work, but at least give it a go and see. What an amazing place to leave an extraordinary conversation. Bev Colvin, you've inspired us to think creatively and with empathy about communities in place in the challenges that we face in a time in Australia where policy decision-making is more complex and fraught than it needs to be. Thank you so much for joining us today on Policy Forum Pod. Thank you very much for your generous invitation and your kind and thoughtful questions. It's been so much fun to speak with you both. Sharon, That was a remarkable conversation. One of the extraordinary privileges about co-hosting this podcast with you is listening to people talking about complex problems and really thinking deeply about the sorts of solutions that might bring us together and honestly make the world a better place. I find listening to Beck talk about how we work with communities that are under strain just extraordinary. And I know having spent time with her over the last couple of years, She has helped me to find compassion that I don't always have, and I really, really respect that so immensely. Climate change as a social object is such an important concept, and the idea that our identity and our ideas of belonging sit within this complex political debate is a really powerful idea and one I know that I'll continue to reflect on. But it's Beck's work on place-based community approaches, uh, extraordinary for energy transition, but also valuable for social challenges like housing, like work and education and health. It's also an integral part of climate adaptation as we see the increase in extreme weather events, that local solutions, caring for people in places, is such an important way to frame. So I, I really could listen to Rebecca Colvin speak for a long time about the work and the perspectives that she brings to these difficult challenges. But Sharon, I'd love to hear your thoughts. How did you find today's conversation? Yeah, oh, like you, Anna Greta, I, I really enjoyed that conversation. And Beck is a remarkable researcher, but also a remarkable communicator um, who's able to help us find ways of understanding what are really, really complex and challenging and often very confronting issues. But I think one of the things that, that I really picked up on through that conversation is the importance of understanding people's love for and connection to place. And I think that's something that's often overlooked and ignored. And we often see particular communities being demonised in ways that are really problematic by those who are standing outside. 
but of course it's it's our connection to nature and to our planet and to our place that makes us human. You know, that's part of what we often talk about, Aunty Greta, around valuing care. You know, it's it's care for the place that we live in. And I think that recognition of people's connection to their place is so important if we are to reimagine a future that is decarbonised um, and a future that gives us a chance of maintaining the health of this planet that we all depend on. And as I listen to Beck, I think about the the research that I've done in small communities in Tasmania, where that us and, and them kind of division is thought so deeply. And very often those small local communities that, that I've done some work in really feel under attack by those who are outside the communities and don't have the love of place and the connection to place that local communities have. And when we get those divides, it makes it very hard, almost impossible for us to find common ground. So I think Beck's work gives us such a powerful way forward. But I really loved what she said about returning to people who are asked to share their time to find solutions. And as I listen to Beck and kind of think about how we can do things differently, I think it's time for us to move beyond this idea of consultation, where expert outsiders come in and ask, and I think it's time for us to move towards conversations that are based on respect and understanding and really shift the balance of power so that we can listen and listen fully to one another. Listening. It's the year of listening. These ideas of love, care and connection, the ideas of gratitude and kindness and the compassion that we can find, particularly for communities that are contending with difficult change, just reminds me that moving outside a measurable metric can be so valuable for policymakers to give people agency, to trust in the messiness of the human relationship, to value care for people and place. Listeners, this podcast is produced by the ANU Crawford School of Public Policy. We'll leave a link to the publications and sources that we've discussed on the Crawford LinkedIn account. If you liked this episode, please don't forget to subscribe to keep up to date with future episodes. And if you're feeling generous, we do love to get your reviews. It's the best way for other people to find out about the podcast. And we also love hearing from you, our audience. So please do reach out to us. You can do that on Twitter at ANU Crawford or through the Crawford School of Public Policy LinkedIn page. That's all we have time for this week. So from me, Sharon Bessel, it's bye-bye for now. And from me, Anagreta Hunter, we'll see you next week. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.